I, th I think we might get a start. Wow, it's a, it's a very, very full room. Um, so hopefully there'll be a bit of oxygen left in the room by, by the end of the seminar. Um, thanks very much for, for coming. This is the, the first in the Termly um, series for Oxford Transitional Justice Research and also the, the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies. Um, it's a real pleasure to have with us this evening uh, Dr Dan Butt, um, who's a, a lecturer in political theory at the University of Bristol, um, but I'm sure is, uh, is better known to most of you um, for, for all of the time that he spent in Oxford. Um, I'm sure many of you have had the pleasure of either being taught by Dan or have heard Dan present before, hence we have such a full room. Um, Dan, Dan was previously a fellow and a, and a tutor in politics at, at, at Oriel. Um, he still directs the program on uh, courts and the making of public policy for the Foundation um, for Law, Justice and Society. Uh, his research in particular focuses on questions of international justice, uh, particularly in relation to the rectification of historical wrongdoing, um, which of, of course is uh, something that Dan's been working on for a very long time. Um, it's the subject of, of his book recently published with OUP. It's also the subject of <laughs> his, uh, his presentation to us uh, this evening, which is entitled International Justice, Transitional, Distributive and Rectificatory. Um, over to you, Dan. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Phil. Um, I'm going to stand up simply to work PowerPoint rather than to get any kind of, sort of angle over you. Um, so, um, as Phil says, the, the, I'm going to talk today mostly really about uh, the argument of my book, uh, which is called Rectifying International Injustice, Principles of Compensation and Restitution Between Nations. And it's about, broadly speaking, um, the extent to which Western countries in particular uh, owe duties of compensation and reparations uh, as a result of historic injustice. Um, but obviously it would be kind of crazy to try and summarise the argument of an entire book in 40 minutes. So instead what I'm going to try to do is just talk initially for about five minutes about some broad questions of transitional justice, then summarise the argument of the entire book in 30 minutes, um, and then for the last five minutes just say something about some other work I'm doing, uh, or I've done recently on international law. Um, so, um, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here, not least because um, one of the questions which I sort of often find myself asking myself or being asked by people is whether what I do is transitional justice, and I'm never quite sure what the answer to that is. Um, I think, and this is a slightly unfortunate omission to make at this point in this time, uh, that I've sort of concluded it probably isn't, uh, broadly speaking. Um, whether it's kind of theoretical work that goes before transitional justice, or whether it's kind of something which is, looks similar but ends up being different, I'm not entirely sure. But maybe I'll try and explain just a little bit of what I mean about that. Um, so, I mean, certainly it feels often, when people think that what I'm doing is to do a transitional justice. Um, I've got this quotation here from Ruth Title in her book on transitional justice. She says, Understanding the particular problem occasioned by the search for justice in the transitional context requires entering a distinctive discourse, organised in terms of the profound dilemmas endemic to these extraordinary times. Law is caught between the past and the future, between backward-looking and forward-looking, between retrospective and prospective, between the individual and the collective. Accordingly, transitional justice is that justice associated with this context and political circumstances. Well, as far as that goes, that's fine. Um, that's precisely what I sort of think of myself as doing. Um, looking in particular at the relation between the past and the present, and between backward-looking and forward-looking accounts um, of justice. But once I actually end up doing 
doing my stuff and running it through the ways I think about these things, I think it, it, it ends up looking rather different from the literature on transitional justice, which I guess most of you are, are probably more familiar. Um, and so I thought I should probably just explain first of all uh, quite what I'm doing. So what I say here is that my approach is really rooted in international political theory. And I think the international part of that is important uh, and the political theory part of that is important. So um, why do I think this ends up in a slightly different place from some of the transitional justice literature? Well, first of all, there's an explicitly international context to what I'm doing. So I'm interested in questions of one state's duties uh, to another. So I'm not really focusing particularly on what one group within an existing state owes to another, or what the extent to which we can hold a political elite accountable, or things like that. I'm really interested in specifically international questions. So broadly speaking, what one state owes to another um, as a result of injustice, and in particular, as a result of historic injustice. And typically, the, the focus of my work, really, um, is on the duties which are possessed by uh, really consolidated democracies. And so I'm really thinking about sort of, you know, uh, Western advanced democracies, really, I guess, Western industrial powers. And in particular, to be, you know, to be quite upfront about it, my work is really motivated by thinking about um, the United Kingdom and thinking about Britain's colonial past um, and the extent to which Britain owes duties to its former colonies as a result of that past. Now, that's very easily translatable, I think, to other colonial powers, not just in Europe but elsewhere in the world. But different sorts of questions sometimes arise when you think of countries with different kinds of historic interactions. So very often, uh, the countries that I'm dealing with, for example, aren't geographically contiguous, so they're not next to each other. They don't necessarily have an ancient history going back for thousands of years. Um, in some cases, their interaction um, has been much more recent. And in some ways, their interaction might itself be historic to a certain extent. So it might be that there was a certain period in the past when they had a certain kind of rather one-sided interaction, but that they have much less interaction now. Um, and people sometimes think that when you think about questions of historic international injustice, that you know, it could be instantly rebutted by saying, oh, well, what about France and England? You know? What are you going to rectify there? Or where should the Bayer tapestry go? And this sort of thing. Um, compelling questions. Um, and I don't think they are actually compelling questions. I, I think in many cases, when you have many communities which have developed alongside each other, um, it's meaningful to say that they've reached some kind of equilibrium. Um, but it's very hard to say that one party has lost or gained as a result, certainly, of their historic interaction. Um, but very often, when you look at these different kinds of contexts, and colonialism is the prime example of it, I think, um, you get interaction where you can't really say there's been the same kind of equilibrium, uh, where things seem much more one-sided, where it's just not meaningful to say that each party has perhaps gained or lost to the same extent uh, over the passage of time. Now, I'm not saying that it's always the case that countries which are in that next-to-each-other situation uh, do end up in that state of equilibrium. And in particular, there are obviously very important questions of justice to address um, in a context where, broadly speaking, an equilibrium has been reached and is then disturbed and lots of the wrongdoing of the 20th century, I think, you can see in that kind of way. But anyway, it's a particular kind of context that many of the issues of which I'm dealing with come up. Now, secondly, and this is obviously important, uh, I'm focusing primarily on moral rather than legal duties. So, insofar as I'm making arguments about the duties of present-day states in relation to other states, they're not in the first instance legal duties. Uh, they're moral duties. And so, really, I'm, this is why I say it's... it's political theory. I'm, I'm trying to build a political case um, in favour of reparations, in favour of fulfilling duties to others. Um, now, it's not to say anything against sort of parallel projects which um, other people are engaged with, which try to base reparations claims in 
in a legal context. Um, I have to say I'm not hugely optimistic about success within a legal context. Um, and that's, again, because of the particular international context here. Um, I, I'm just rather sceptical about the extent to which international law can really uh, ground uh, reparations claims, given uh, its character, given uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, the fact it's based on, basically, it's based on treaties, um, given that international law typically doesn't have retroactive effect, which is something I'll talk about later, given concerns about statutes of limitations and this kind of thing. So um, it might be that people with a rather different account of international law than that which is kind of ha uh, prominent in, in the world today could build this kind of case. But really I'm focusing initially on moral duties. So it's the moral duties of uh, basically Western democracies often to their former colonies. That's kind of where I come into this. Um, now, when I talk about duties, I mean, it would be quite possible to characterise this in terms of rights. So, the rights of the, as it were, the victim peoples or the victim countries, rather than the duties of the offending uh, countries. And I don't really mean to draw a contrast there. It's a matter of emphasis, really. But I do think that politically it's kind of significant that this is a project which is seen in terms of uh, former colonial powers fulfilling their duties to others, rather than which is rooted in the rights of uh, of victim countries. There are various reasons for that. There are various critiques of victimhood and so forth, which come into play more if this is being uh, described in terms of the rights of these countries rather than the duties of others. Um, it's largely semantic. I, you know, the idea of rights and duties I have here is a Hoffelbian claims right account that says that to have a duty to others is necessarily for that other to have a right in relation to you. But still, this is the, this is the focus I have. Um, and, and finally, maybe this is most important, um, there's a differing sense in which the kind of project that I'm engaged with is practical from the sense in which I take it that many people who work on transitional justice um, are concerned with questions of practicality. Um, now, I mean, there are some quite deep issues here, I think, about the meaning of transitional justice, kind of the philosophy, what it means to say that something is a question of transitional justice. Um, I used to have a more sort of straightforward view about this. I used to think that... Um, I was a certain kind of idealist, I guess, in relation to transitional justice. Um, the, what I thought we should do is work out what justice required in a straightforward sense, and you know, uh, working out what we would do if we would do justice even though the heavens should fall, and then worry about questions of practicality. Right? So if we, you know, we're worried about some sort of former dictator, and we think there might be problems built in trying him, you get one account rooted in justice, or so I thought as to what we should do with him, and then you have to think about practicalities. Then you have to think about the consequences of actually acting in this way. So I tended to think that transitional justice was maybe something of a misnomer. That in fact, that, you know, all the work, all the justice-based work, was being done by the first kind of considerations. And then when it came to think about what we should do in an all-things-considered sense, um, it was really a question about uh, to what extent <coughs> other valuable goals should trump the pursuit of justice. Um, I don't really think that's right anymore. I think that there's much more to be said in favour of an account that says that um, transitional justice tells us both what we should do in an all-things-considered sense, but also gives us an account of, of justice, and that the answer to the question of what we should do in an all-things-considered sense is the answer to the question of what we should be doing in terms of justice, what justice requires of us. So um, I'm not trying to give that kind of account here. So I'm not trying to give an account of... Uh, what should be done in all things considered sense. I don't have straightforward answers uh, to what given countries should do practically here and now to other countries. Um, really, I'm trying to look at the background set of moral duties, which I think 
applied to their interaction, then it's really a further question um, as to how those duties should be fulfilled. So, you know, whether we're talking about you know, uh, transferring resources, whether we're talking about changing uh, trade terms, whether there's other kinds of interventions we can think about, or whether in some cases actually fulfilling uh, rectificatory duties would be counterproductive. And so it's something that shouldn't be pursued. I don't really get into those questions. Really, I'm just arguing about um, the basic background of rights and duties that people have. Now, that might make this seem rather kind of abstract and unpractical, and that may well be true. Um, it is nonetheless, I would maintain, more practical than quite a lot of work which is done in political theory on questions of international justice. And the reason for that is that I see myself as uh, working within certain sort of empirical constraints to a certain extent. And really, those constraints are to do with uh, everyday uh, views about, in particular, distributive justice. So. Um, a certain number of uh, political theorists are what we might call egalitarian cosmopolitans when they come to thinking about distributive justice. And that means, very broadly speaking, that there's some sense in which the world's resources should be equally shared out um, amongst every individual in the world. Now, I, I probably think that's true, actually, um, personally. But uh, that isn't the kind of way I approach these questions of justice here. Um, instead, I work within what I take to be more realistic um, beliefs about distributive justice. Um, which are much more limited in terms of what people in one country owe to people in another country. Um, I'll expand this as I go along, but I do think that that lends my project a certain kind of practicality. It means that you can make real-world arguments about what countries should do in a way which I think egalitarian cosmopolitans often struggle to do. Okay, so, um, this is what I call the, the broad project, the International Rectificatory Project. And so, it starts from a, a claim which I'm not going to justify. People may want to argue about it. Um, the history of international relations is characterized by widespread, I mean, I guess really endemic, you might even say, injustice. And I think that's true, uh, notwithstanding the recent development of international law and historically different beliefs about justice and injustice. Uh, people may want to debate either of those. We can do open questions, but I'm sort of taking that as a given for now. So my view is that historically, we look at international relations, we see widespread injustice, enslavement, invasion, wrongdoing, uh, pretty much everywhere. And so my big research question is, to what extent does historic international wrongdoing give rise to present-day moral obligations to non-nationals, to people uh, living in other states? And this is the broad sort of form my argument has. I'm going to say something about each of these three forms of morally relevant connection with the past. Um, I think that, so basically the idea here is that there are three ways in which we can come um, to have moral obligations to people in other states as a result of historic international wrongdoing. So, you know, um, the basic idea here is to think about wrongdoing that no one in this generation, let's say, can reasonably be blamed for. So let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that anyone involved with the actual commission of the original act of injustice, let's assume that they're now dead. Um, we can even assume that anyone immediately affected by the original act of injustice are now dead as well. Um, so it's not straightforward to say that there are people who are offenders or victims in relation to that original act of injustice, because we can stipulate that no one now alive was alive at the time. Well, does that mean that these kind of duties and rights simply lapse, or can we say something more meaningful? Can there, ways in, can there be ways in which we're connected with the past, even though we ourselves, we might think, I'm not sure it's true, but we might think, um, are guilty of injustice. Well, the suggestion is there are three ways we can be. Um, I say that we can be connected with the past in terms of benefit. So when one nation is benefiting, 
and another is disadvantaged as a result of the automatic effects of an act of historic injustice. Um, entitlement, when one nation has possession of property to which another nation is morally entitled. And responsibility, uh, when one nation is responsible for an ongoing injustice in connection with another nation, understood in terms of an ongoing failure to fulfil rectificatory duties over time. Now, I'll say something more about all of these. Um, the basic idea, then, is that when we have a given instance of historic wrongdoing, what we need to do is uh, look at the extent to which it has effects in the present day, look at the way in which we're connected <coughs> with it uh, in the present. And then, so there are three potential ways which might give rise to rectificatory duties. That's the basic idea. In some cases, none of these may be met. In some cases, all three may be met. So there are three distinct and independent sources for rectificatory duties. Although there are various complicated ways where if more than one is present, they kind of start affecting each other. Okay. So. Now, I've called this Why Worry About the Past. So, um, any account of rectificatory justice that tells us, in particular, how we should distribute benefits and burdens in response to wrongdoing, necessarily relies upon an account of distributive justice. So people sometimes think there can be a tension between rectificatory or corrective justice and distributive justice. They think that corrective justice tells us how we should correct wrongdoing, um, distributive justice tells us who should have what, insofar as corrective justice makes claims about giving certain people certain resources to correct the injustice, it might give us a different answer to the answer of distributive justice. So, let me just give you a very idealised way in which that could work. Um, suppose that someone was just a very, very pure egalitarian. Okay? Uh, they thought that no matter what happened, um, everyone should have equal, an equal share of resources. Okay? Now imagine we have someone who goes around taking people's resources and destroying them. Okay? Well, typically, a, sort of a common sense account of corrective or rectificatory justice would hold that person responsible for her actions. Right? So they'd say that, well, you know, we should take from her share of resources and compensate the person who's been the victim. Um, but of course, if we have that very pure egalitarian account, it seems as if there's a conflict. Um, the egalitarian account says we should always act so everyone has an equal share of resources. So presumably in that case, we should redistribute resources so everyone has an equal share, including the person who's going around destroying the resources. So it's sometimes thought that these two things can conflict. And very often, in the literature on this, what you find is people who are trying to assert the primacy of distributive justice against ideas of rectificatory justice. So often what they say is, well, look, it's true that there was wrongdoing in the past, and it's true that that shouldn't have happened. But when we're thinking about what we should do in the here and now, we should be forward-looking rather than backward-looking. We should work out what the best account of who should have what resources is. And so we should look rather to rectificatory justice we should look to distributive justice. Okay, and you see that in the, rain, in the, in the work of lots of political theorists. Um, I mean, Jeremy Waldron is one example, but there are many other people. So this leads to this claim I'm making here. The ethical significance of historic injustice turns upon the issue of whether our account of distributive justice is backward-looking or forward-looking. Okay? Um, the basic way to think about this is to think about what do we think about inheritance, all right? So, suppose you think that inheritance is morally unjustifiable, as many political theorists do. So, suppose you think that when people die, their resources should be taken in by the state and be redistributed amongst everyone in the community. And that would be an egalitarian position that's very popular amongst political theorists. 
Um, well, it follows that if you have that kind of position, you're really not going to care very much about historic injustice, certainly historic injustice that took place before the present generation, because really it has no effect on who should have what in the present day. Um, that kind of issue has just lapsed. Um, the account of who should have what in the present day is given to us by our account of distributive justice. So who did what to whom 200 years ago really isn't here or there. What the state should be doing is taxing people and then redistributing to everyone equally, regardless of this kind of, uh, this kind of historic action. So that kind of account is forward-looking. And so it seems as if it's true that if we have a forward-looking account, we really don't worry much about what happened in the distant past. But of course, some people deny that kind of claim about inheritance. So uh, a political theorist such as Robert Nozick, a historical entitlement theorist, a libertarian, uh, he has a backward-looking account of distributive justice. Um, he thinks that it's justifiable for one generation to pass resources onto the next. He thinks it's, it's justifiable for inequalities to build up over time. Now, the idea there is that if, in fact, your account of distributive justice is backward-looking, then historic injustice is much more important. Because it does make a difference to what we have in the here and now, um, what people did 50, 100, 150 years ago. If we're not redistributing resources afresh with each new generation, then the question of how we came to have the resources we currently have is of supreme importance. And so rectificatory justice is much more important and plays a much more important role if we have a backward-looking rather than a forward-looking account of distributive justice. And here's the, here's the key point for me. Although political theorists often advocate forward-looking principles domestically, so in relation to a given political community, um, many theorists, and I think the vast majority of real-world actors, advocate backward-looking principles sorry, internationally. I say the key move here is opposition to generational redistribution. So what that means is that even though lots of writers think that we should redistribute resources in some sense in equal fashion within nation-states or within states or within peoples, often they resist the egalitarian cosmopolitan claim that all resources should be redistributed across the whole globe, regardless of national boundary. Now, of course, some theorists do maintain precisely that. But as I said before, it's a controversial position. And I think, it seems to me, that's counter to a lot of what most real-world actors think about international distributive justice. So what you actually find is a whole range of political theorists, uh, John Rawls, Thomas Nagel, uh, David Miller, amongst many others, who are broadly egalitarian when it comes to particular political communities, but then are not egalitarian when it comes to the world as a whole. So they advocate some kind of generational redistribution within a given political community, but they don't then say that there should be a generational redistribution across the world as a whole. So what that means, basically, is that they have a forward-looking account of domestic distributive justice, but a backward-looking account of international distributive justice. And I think this kind of has been a huge problem in theoretical thinking uh, about historic international injustice. Because what people have done is taken a set of beliefs stemming from their forward-looking accounts of domestic injustice and applied that to questions of historic international injustice while overlooking the fact that very many people have backward-looking accounts internationally. So insofar as we're not redistributing resources afresh with each new generation internationally, it looks as if we have to worry about historic injustice. We have to worry about ways in which historic actions have affected what people have in the here and now. Okay, so uh, I'll just quickly run through this. So the idea that I'm sort of running with here is that um, is this model of what I call international libertarianism. And broadly speaking, this is the idea that 
uh, the principles of distributive justice, which many theorists advocate in an international context, bear a strong resemblance to those advocated by libertarian theorists domestically. Again, I'm thinking of people like Robert Nozick. So this is kind of the core account of what I call international libertarianism. Um, they focus on just international interaction. They think that states should refrain from forceful intervention in the affairs of other states, other than when acting in self-defense, or to provide hum prevent human rights violations in those states. And they think that states should comply with treaties when they're voluntarily made. And they may include these kind of further principles, saying that states shouldn't harm non-nationals, may have duties of reciprocity to non-nationals, they shouldn't exploit people in other countries, they may have duties to assist people in desperate need in other countries. So this is what I call international libertarianism. Um, the idea is this falls far short of any kind of egalitarian cosmopolitanism, right? It doesn't require us to redistribute resources equally across the globe. Instead, it focuses on the following kind of ideas. Um, respect for national sovereignty, self-ownership, taken to include uh, ownership of natural resources in the given country, and typically it looks to a minimal kind of world state. It is sceptical about international organisations that dilute national sovereignty. Now, my claim is that these are very similar to the kind of principles which backward-looking libertarians uh, advocate in relation to domestic justice. So if this is how we think the world should be governed, that we have a series of self-governing sovereign states with control over their borders, they determine who comes in and who comes out, who have uh, a monopoly over the natural resources in their borders, and who only have duties to other countries to redistribute resources at the most when people in other countries are in dire straits, then we have a very limited vision of international justice. And it's an essentially a backward-looking vision. Now, I take it that's the, that's the account of international justice which is prominent in international law. I take it that that's the one that most people in the real world endorse, and it's one which many political theorists endorse. So it's essentially a backward-looking account of international justice. Okay, so that's the first sort of big idea. If we think that the way in which distributive justice works internationally is backward-looking, we have to worry about what happened in the past and how that affects what we come to have in the present. So what I'm going to do now is just quickly go over um, the three forms of morally relevant connection I talk about in relation to the past. So that's the idea that we owe compensation because we're benefiting and others are suffering from the results of injustice, that we might owe restitution of property because we have property in our possession that others have an entitlement to, and that we might owe a certain kind of uh, reparation um, because we're responsible for an ongoing injustice. So first of all, we have compensation. Now, we have to ask sort of two questions when we're thinking about compensation for historic international injustice. Or indeed, well, really, really any kind of question. About compensation. So first of all, we have to ask who, if anyone, is advantaged or disadvantaged as a result of historic injustice. So first of all, we need some kind of empirical claim about loss and benefit stemming from historic actions. Um, and then we need a claim about why that matters. So there's an empirical question there. Are some people benefiting? Are some losing as a result of historic injustice? Now I'll go on to show that there's a further question, which is, well, does that matter? Does the fact that some are losing and some are benefiting have any moral implications? Uh, lots of people think it doesn't. So just to give you an example of the way some people talk about compensation in response to historic injustice. This is a quotation from Ellen Frankel Paul. She says, it's about reparations claims uh, in modern day America. So she says, if not for the slave trade, 
Most of the descendants of the slaves would now be living in Africa under regimes known neither for their respect for human rights, indeed for human life, nor for the economic well-being of their citizens. The typical denizen of one of these states, I dare speculate, would envy the condition of the black teenage mother on welfare in one of this country's, that's the US's, worst inner cities. Starvation, war, tribal depredations, infant mortality, disease and hopelessness are the standard condition of many regions of Africa, for example, Ethiopia and Somalia. It's not an unusual statement in the literature. Um, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with sort of debates about colonialism. Um, when people seek to justify, for example, the British Empire, um, there's a move they often make, which is to say, well, look, even if this might have been unjust at the time, even if it involved certain kinds of rights violations, evading countries and so forth, it had good effects. Right? It's a standard kind of line in relation to the British Empire. So they say, even if it's true that we shouldn't have done it, in fact, it's worked out okay. And they claim that various uh, former colonies um, are now better off than they would have been in the absence of Britain's action. Therefore, they argue, there can be no case for modern-day reparations. So it might be the case even at the time that reparations might have been due. But the claim is these actions have had good effects. There's no lasting harm. There's a further debate as to whether there's lasting benefit. But there's no la lasting harm. Ego, no role for modern-day reparations. OK. Well, I'll have to go through this quickly, but um, I want to fairly obviously dispute that kind of approach. And I think it gets the nature of compensatory justice very badly wrong. Uh, and it gets the role that counterfactuals play in uh, compensatory justice badly wrong. So I have here four claims about counterfactuals. So first of all, all claims about harm and benefit necessarily make reference to some counterfactual state. So when we're talking about someone benefiting or being harmed from a given action, we say in some sense, well, they're better off now than they would have been. Right? That's a familiar kind of idea. So in order to assess harm or benefit, we have to make that kind of counterfactual comparison. Say they're better off or worse off than some counterfactual state. What we normally say, and it's not clear what we mean, what we normally say is they're better off or they're worse off than they would have been if this hadn't happened. Now, if that's all we're saying, then two comes in. There are multiple such counterfactuals. Um, if I say I'm better off now than I would have been if this hadn't happened, there's an infinite number of ways that things might have turned out if the event hadn't happened. Right? Um, all sorts of things could have happened. We simply don't know. In no case do we ever know what would have happened if a given historic action hadn't taken place. Now, we can try to make a guess. We can try to make a probabilistic calculation. We can try and say, well, we think this is the most likely thing that would have happened. But we simply have no idea. There's an infinite number of possibilities of what might have happened. Now, the key point really is point three. When we think about compensation, we shouldn't necessarily make reference to the most probable counterfactual. Now, Joel Feinberg has kind of demonstrated this. It's pretty convincing, I think. So imagine this example. Suppose that I'm about to get on a plane. Uh, and suppose that I'm mugged. Uh, let's say on the, on the steps of the plane. Now, my mother beats me up and takes my wallet and breaks my arm, and I have to go to hospital. Um, well, that mother owes me compensation. And that's true, even if the plane I was going to get on, and now I'm prohibited from, prevented from boarding, that's true if that plane crashes, right? So there's a real sense in which the, the mother has made me better off, right? If we look at the most probable counterfactual, it's true that if the mother hadn't attached me, attacked me, or it seems to be true, I would have got on the plane, most probably, the plane would still have crashed, most probably, I'd now be dead. So it looks as if I've been made much better off. 
by the mugger's actions. We then draw the conclusion from that that the mugger doesn't owe me compensation. Um, instead, we construct a different kind of counterfactual. We construct a counterfactual that says, well, suppose that it was true both that you were mugged. Um, was, sorry, suppose it was true that you weren't mugged and got on the plane, but the plane didn't crash. Now, it might be wildly unlikely in, in practice that your getting on the plane would have made any difference and meant it wouldn't have crashed. But that's the counterfactual we use in order to think about compensation. Um, now, we can think of similar sorts of cases when we think about um, historic injustice. This is particularly true when we think about cases of exploitation. Right? So think about a case of exploitation. Um, you know, suppose that I, uh, I kidnap you and force you at gunpoint to work underground in my diamond mines for 30 years. <coughs> and after 30 years, I let you out. Right? Well, and then we say, well, what, you know, what's owed? I mean, there are many different counterfactuals to that case. One counterfactual might be the, the, the counterfactual whereby I never, I never came to you and you lived your life in the way you would have done in the absence of my involvement. A different counterfactual might be one where I came along to you and said, look, I've got this proposition. I want you to work in my underground diamond mines. I'll pay you 50-50, right? I mean, there's many different ways that history could have turned out. There's no particular reason necessary to think we should go with one account rather than the other. So my claim here is that in cases of exploitation, the morally relevant counterfactual is one whereby the same kind of interaction took place, but where it was consensual and non-exploitative. So when you think about, for example, countries' colonial past, you have to, rather than imagining that these countries never had any kind of interaction, which takes us miles away from the present reality, we have to try to imagine some kind of counterfactual, whereby it was a cooperative enterprise for mutual benefit, perhaps, and then work out to what extent modern-day countries are benefiting or suffering in comparison to that counterfactual. And my contention is that um, many former colonies, by that kind of account, are much, much worse off than they should be. Okay, I don't have time to talk about this in great detail, but um, there's a further moral question that needs to be dealt with when we think about compensation. So, I said there were two questions. So, one question is, um, are people benefiting and others suffering as a result of historic injustice? But even if we think we can show that they are, in relation to the relevant counterfactual, still a further question, which is, well, so what? So, some people think that if I benefit involuntarily, from injustice, and others suffer, but I have no responsibility for that injustice. I don't owe them any kind of compensation. Um, so they think that you can only come to have compensatory duties to others when you yourself are responsible for a commission of injustice. So they think that merely benefiting from injustice isn't enough. This is an example from Robert Fullenweiler. It's, it comes from the literature on affirmative action, but this is a big debate. So he imagines um, an example of a driveway. Um, the idea is that my neighbour wants a new driveway, my neighbour contracts with a construction company to build a new driveway, um, but when uh, my neighbour is away, an enemy of my neighbour substitutes in the instructions my driveway for my neighbour's driveway. So the construction crew turns up and paves my driveway rather than my neighbour's driveway. So imagine now the construction crew have been paid, they've gone, the enemy, don't know who he is, we're left now just with me and my neighbour. My neighbour has paid £1,000 for this driveway. Uh, I've got the new driveway. Well, the question is, should I pay for the driveway? I didn't say I wanted it. I've benefited involuntarily um, from injustice. Full and wider's claim is that it's obvious that I don't have a duty to pay for the new driveway. Um, I'm not so sure about that claim. Um, and this is one of these things that people just have different intuitive reactions to, I think. But 
let's suppose, I mean, I think one of the problems with this case is that we imagine a situation whereby I don't really want the new driveway, right? Um, you know, perhaps I prefer my old driveway. Uh, I'm going to be worse off as a result of having to pay any money, let alone a thousand pounds. But suppose that isn't the case. Suppose that I love my new driveway. Suppose, in fact, that I would happily have paid a thousand pounds for my new driveway if this construction crew had come and asked me if I wanted my drive repaid. That, I think, is, is the relevant question here. Let's put to one side questions of whether people have really benefited or not. The question is, if, on your own account, you've un unambiguously benefited as a result of injustice, do you have a moral duty to the victims of that injustice um, to help them? And I think, I think you do. So my claim is that um, in the case where you have benefited by, you know, where you really would have paid the full £1,000 for the new driveway, you should pay the full £1,000. Um, if you'd have paid £500, not £1,000, I think you should pay £500. It's a controversial claim, it needs much more justification, I think it's complicated, it's partly to do with um, what it means to condemn an act of injustice as wrong, um, but you need some kind of claim like this to work if you're going to contend that we have duties to compensate as a result of historic injustice on the grounds that we're benefiting. Okay, well I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to quickly whiz through um, the last two remaining things, and then very quickly whiz through the international law stuff. So, um, the second form of morally relevant connection is, I guess, the most straightforward. Um, it's the entitlement. So it's a very straightforward idea. It simply says that people uh, living in the present day may have in their possession property, so tangible property, let's say, uh, which rightly belongs to people in another country, a person or people in another country. And the claim is that um, that property should be returned. So this kind of claim doesn't need to make any kind of uh, account to reference the counterfactual. It's just a claim about property. It says that if some property was, let's say, misappropriated, stolen in the past, and now is in the possession of another country, um, people in the present could have inherited an entitlement to that property. Um, and therefore, it should be returned. So no arguments about counterfactuals there. It's just a claim um, about uh, property rights. Now, what you need for that is a relatively robust account of property rights. You need an account that, whereby your property right in something persists, even though it's out of your possession for a lengthy period of time, maybe a couple of hundred years. Now, typically, political theorists are sceptical about those kind of claims. Um, but the point I want to make, and it's, uh, it's not there. the point I want to make, and it's, it's you know, too complicated to go into great detail, is that international libertarians um, have good reasons to say that those kind of property rights can indeed persist over time. So again, remember that international libertarians are putting forward a backward-looking account um, of distributive justice. Uh, they think that countries uh, have exclusive use over the resources in their territory. They don't think that they have distributive duties uh, to people in other countries. Well, if that's your kind of account, I think you can put a good account forward of historical entitlement. You can say that this property was created by people of our country using resources found within our country. And therefore, we have a strong property claim to it. Um, and the property claim is as good on that account, I think, as the starting premises of international libertarianism. So again, I don't think what you can do is use uh, arguments stemming from sort of uh, a domestic, forward-looking account of distributive justice that would say that those kind of rights to inheritance wouldn't exist within a given nation-state to argue about the international case. We might think that international property holdings are much more robust. I think that's particularly true. I mean, I think a good example of that is when you think about 
cultural property, so artworks, for example, which have been stolen by one country to another. And what you find, you find all the time when you look at sort of institutions like the British Museum talking about cultural property, is they suddenly start appealing to cosmopolitan arguments. So they suddenly start saying, well, it's true that we stole this, and it's true that we shouldn't have. Um, but in a sense, they belong to all of humanity, don't they? Um, you know, we're holding this on trust for all of humanity. Uh, th these ideas of nationality and the nation-state you're coming up with are very old-fashioned. Um, and of course, that's fine if you're committed in a thoroughgoing way to cosmopolitanism, if you're committed to a principle of global egalitarianism, for example. There's something very strange about saying that cultural property, and only cultural property, is the kind of thing that there are cosmopolitan property rights over. When it comes to money or oil or other resources, nations are allowed to hold on to their own property. Okay, final kind of claim that I really will stop. Um, responsibility. Um, I'll just make this very quickly. So, I think you can build an argument that says that there are some modern-day communities that owe rectificatory duties as a result of historic international injustice due to responsibility for wrongdoing passing across generations. That's a controversial idea. It looks as if I'm holding children responsible for the sins of the fathers, that kind of thing. Let me show you how I think this works. I think there are three claims, if you put together, give you an argument to show how responsibility can pass down across generations. Firstly, the failure to rectify injustice is unjust. If I steal a car from you, that's unjust. I should give it back. Uh, that's true the day after I stole it. It's true the day after that as well. Um, the failure to return the car constitutes an ongoing act of injustice. There's a sense in which every time I fail to give back the car, I commit a new act of injustice. Right? Now, similarly, a failure to, so, you know, a failure to, for example, pay compensation constitutes an act of injustice. Suppose I mug you and I owe you compensation. I refuse to pay it. Suppose every day for the next 10 years you ask me for this compensation and I refuse to give it to you. Well, there's a sense in which that's an ongoing injustice. There's a sense in which every day I commit a fresh act of injustice. So the failure to rectify is itself an act of injustice. Secondly, nations can in some cases be held responsible for the effects of the actions of their leaders. So I'm making a claim here about collective responsibility. It's not a claim saying that collectives necessarily have moral responsibility for the actions of their leaders. But we often think, and many people accept this, that certainly, let's say, in relation to democracies, it's justifiable to hold peoples responsible for the costs, for the effects of the actions of their leaders. Finally, nations are composed of overlapping rather than successive generations. It's not true in the real world when you think about a political community stretching across time. It's not true that one generation simply comes along and replaces another. In fact, there are constantly new people being born and dying in a given political community. Put all three of those together, and you get this argument, the responsibility for the failure to rectify injustice can be transmitted across generations. So we think about something, let's say, that happened 80 years ago. Um, we might well think that it was unjust it happened at the time. Compensation should have been paid. The failure to pay compensation is an ongoing injustice every day since then. And each new person who was born into the community inherited that responsibility. Because at the time they were born into the community, it was still the case that that duty to pay compensation existed. The failure at that point to pay the compensation was a new act of injustice. If we have the principle of collective responsibility, everyone in the community at that time was, in a sense, responsible for the effects of the actions of the leaders to not pay that compensation. So that gives us an idea whereby we can see the failure to rectify injustice historically as something that passes down across generations. Um, I'd better stop there. There are some further thoughts I have about international law, um, but uh, I'm out of time. So.
we can talk about that with people later. <clears throat> Thanks, Dan. I'm sure there'll be no shortage of questions, so who would like to start us off? Thanks.